Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. A nation for an audiophile, generals to act and dictators to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Germans, like themselves, assume the port of Mars and at their heels leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. But pardon us, ladies and gentlemen. We poor low spirits who have dared on this unworthy audiophile to bring forth the vast plains of Russia. Can we cram within this MP3 the endless lines of tanks that blasted the air at Stalingrad? Pardon us, since a few numbers on our tongues must take the place of millions of men, and let us storytellers of this great contest on your imaginary forces work. Suppose, within this sound file are now confined two great dictators whose long, endless front line runs across a continent. Within your mind... See the awe-inspiring sight and make imaginary flames dance in imaginary cities. Think, when we talk of tanks, that you see them printing their mechanized treads in the muddy earth. Because it's your thoughts that now must deck our soldiers. Carry them here and there, jumping across time, turning the story of many months into an hourglass. And so, dear listener, consider me a travel guide in this story and... As a good friend would, I humbly ask you kindly to hear and to judge our podcast. Hello and welcome to Battlecast, the show where we recount the epic history no one else will. I'm Luke, and I'm joined in the bunker with the man whose haircut makes Amish people say, hey, at least I'm not that guy. I'm talking about Chris, ladies and gentlemen. Chris, say something to the people. Well, thanks as always, buddy. Hey, and at least I'm not going bald. Your hairline's receding faster than a Democrat's promise to fix health care. Yeah, well. Hey, how about this weather we're having? Summertime in northern Georgia. Yeah, I'm loving it. Yeah, 95 degree temperatures and 100% humidity. Yeah, I think I was eating the air with a spoon when I was out there with my kids earlier today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, dude, it's good to see you back in the bunker, buddy. I, I want to thank Amanda and Ed from Laguna Beach, California. Thanks, Ed. For picking up the tab for this round. If any of you want to buy us a beer, head on over to the website and click on the donate button. All right. Now I want to take you back to one of the most decisive battles in the history of mankind. I'm talking about Stalingrad. Where's that? Stalingrad. One more time. Stalingrad. Quit Stalingrad. <laughs> I'm stalling you. <laughs> this battle is a turning point in world history. Wherever you are, whatever your language, this one battle influences everything about your world today. I'm talking about millions of men in a war to the death. Think about what that looks like. Imagine camera shots flying above lines of tens of thousands of prisoners. Hundreds of thousands of dead bodies. Imagine cities burning. Refugees fleeing. See weeping. Deformed children. Anguish. Pain. Imagine it in HD in your mind's screen as we get ready for the drink review. Okay, today we're drinking Green Mart Vodka. Green Mart Vodka is a true Russian vodka that comes in at 40% alcohol and boasts a smooth, light flavor. I haven't drank vodka in years, excluding the occasional white Russian, and we're drinking it cold and straight tonight, just like the Russians would want us to. I can't remember the last time I had it straight. Chris, drinks to you, man. What do you think of this drink? 
Oh, I love vodka. Man, this is really good, really smooth. Got a good flavor to it. Um, vodka is just one of the most versatile liquors of all time, man. You can mix it with anything, you can drink it straight, mm. get you messed up, and that's that's good booze. That is good booze. And I believe you brought us some uh, mixers tonight. What did you bring? It's Red Bull and vodka? Red Bull and vodka. Haven't had one of those since I was in college. So, yeah, this is a damn good vodka. And the price point is awesome, too, on this. So if you want vodka, I highly recommend Green Mark. Four bullets out of five. Solid vodka. Four and a half out of five. Um, you don't have to mix it, but you can if you want to. It's a good choice, my friend. And now, Stalingrad. Stalingrad had to be annihilated because there were so many factories producing supplies for the Soviet army. That's why they all had to be wiped out. Every time we were given the command to target a different factory. A huge black cloud of smoke hung over Stalingrad. And the thermal pressure weighed down on it, so that the cloud of smoke formed an enormous cross. It's a fight for a house, where death lurks behind every corner. You can't imagine a situation more frightening and more horrible than that. When fighting in the buildings, we came across all sorts of things where Russians were sitting in the cellar. Our men were on the first and the second floor. But then there were Russians on the top floor again. Oh, we often saw that in the remaining solid buildings. Today we're going to tell you about the bloodiest battle in human history, the bloodiest battle in the history of the universe. I want you to think about that. Let it sink in and pervade your mind like tea infusing water. At the end of 1941, German forces along the whole 1,000 mile long eastern front, ranging from the Baltic to the Black Sea, were deployed in a row of defensive areas nicknamed hedgehogs. During the winter months of 1941, Hitler ordered the savagely mauled German forces who had advanced hundreds of miles into Russia during Operation Barbarossa to stand fast where they were. No retreat. On January 1942, Stalin's forces counterattacked the ill-equipped Germans on a grand scale. The attack was largely unsuccessful. Finally, on April 5, 1942, after months of static fighting, Hitler committed to a drive on southern Russia, aiming towards the huge supplies of oil and grain in the Caucasus region, near the current state of Azerbaijan. Almost 90% of Soviet oil came from the Caucasus. If it could be cut off, the Soviet war effort would be seriously hindered, if not incapacitated. The operation was codenamed Plan Blue, like something out of a Quentin Tarantino movie. The plan for the German forces was to drive down to the Caucasus between the Black Sea and the Caspian. They would cut off the vital oil supplies on which Stalin's war machine depended. Initially, the Germans achieved stunning victories. It was 1940s France all over again. On the 23rd of May alone, they achieved another epic triumph. 200,000 Russians were taken prisoner in one battle alone. 200,000. Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan. Historian Antony Bivor 
writes, These seemed glorious days for German frontline regiments. As far as the eye can see, wrote an observer, armored vehicles and half-tracks are rolling forward over the steppe. Pennants float in the shimmering afternoon air. Commanders stood fearlessly erect in their tank turrets, one arm raised high, waving their companies forward, ever forward, towards one place. Still, the bulk of the Soviet forces fell back. Russian resistance continued, and the Germans chased them across southern Russia for hundreds of miles, skirmishing the entire time. First, the Germans chased the Soviets to the Don River, and then to a city on the Volga River. Its name was Stalingrad, and it was a name the world would never forget. Stalingrad, formerly known as Tsaritsyn, now modern Volograd, was the site of the most titanic and terrible battle of the Second World War and the first significant defeat inflicted on Nazi Germany's land forces. Stalin's association with the city went back to the Soviet Civil War when Stalin was instrumental in the city's defense. It was also symbolic and strategically important for Hitler. By 1942, Stalingrad was a sprawling city stretching for 30 miles along the high west bank of the Volga River. The central part of the city was 12 miles long, but nowhere at all, more than two and a half miles wide. It was a crucial industrial and communication center, dominating the northern approaches to the Caucasus. Soviet rivers, rails, and roads all converged on Stalingrad in the region. It was the central hub for the crucial oil being produced in the Caucasus. In early July 1942, it was obvious to the Soviets the Germans were concentrating their drive on southern Russia. Two huge German army groups were committed to the region. Army Group A drove south towards the oil fields below the Caucasus Mountains at Baku. Army Group B chased the Russians in the north on a line to the Don River. By July 23rd, the Germans had reached the Don River. The Russians were running out of space to retreat. The Volga River was the final defensive line. That's when Stalin issued a draconian order. Not one step back! evacuation was forbidden. Workers would continue manning their factories until the Germans kicked in the door. And when the Germans came, the workers would form into a militia and defend their factory with their own lives. The 500,000 civilians of Stalingrad became the nucleus of a new militia army. Every man would fight. The Soviets would hold Stalingrad or die trying. Maybe everyone would fight. Every man. No, uh, actually, they did allow some females to leave. Some women and children to leave. That's true. Yeah, but obviously some didn't make it out. In mid-July, Stalin issued his infamous Order Number 227. Retreat for any reason, including medical weakness, was forbidden. At countless roadblocks, the NKVD, the despised Soviet secret police, inspected papers, asked questions, and executed anyone suspected of running away from the front. No court trial, simple execution. Back to the front. Thousands of corpses lined the roads as a warning to those contemplating desertion killed by the NKVD. When the Germans arrived, only the hardcore would be left to face them. By August 23rd, the Germans reached the Volga River to the north, and that's when the air attacks began. There had been air raid warnings for weeks 
Many of the civilians were inured to the warnings. They went about their business as if nothing was happening. Then one day, the warnings were over. The real world came to Stalingrad, and the people would never be the same. William Craig explains what happened next. Citizens knew things weren't normal when the anti-aircraft guns around Red Square banged loudly in frenzied cadence. Small black puffs marched across the clear blue sky. Cars quickly screeched into a halt like in a Godzilla movie. Tram cars left off passengers who stood mute for a moment, gaping at the sky. Then they saw them. The lead groups of more than 600 German planes coming from beyond the Don River, like strings of seagulls, flying in perfect V formations. The Stuckas and fighter bombers droned over the sun-drenched city and tipped over into their dives. Their bombs fell into the crowded downtown residential area, and, because of the long drought, flames spread like wildfire throughout the city. In seconds, Stalingrad was ablaze. Concussions blew down most of the houses on Pushkin Street. The city waterworks building collapsed from a direct hit. The telephone exchange fell in on itself. All regular phone communication ceased to function. The screams of trapped operators came over the lines when citizens picked up the phone. Meanwhile, the loudspeakers asked people to shoulder arms and fight the invaders in the midst of this chaos. On Medvedskaya Street, every house was burning. Listener, I want you to look out the window, look down the street, and see every building on fire with bombs still falling around you, shrapnel and debris flying through the air like malevolent hummingbirds. I want you to look into the sky and see the planes gliding through the black anti-aircraft bursts. I want you to hear the bombs exploding. Imagine your neighbor, or look over to the car next to you, or the person in the treadmill across the room, and see her arms severed, see blood rush from their heads, see their heads decapitated from their body, immense and terrible destruction all around you. You can literally smell it. The air itself is hot. It burns your throat like the harshest, unfiltered marijuana, but ten times worse. Are you saying it's bad? I'm saying it's very bad, and this is literally just the first day of the battle. It's not even the appetizer. It's the waiter handing you water before he speaks to you. Tap water or sparkling? Tap. Oh. After the bombing, the city shook in agony. Smoke poured through windows and choked men in the streets, not to mention inside the burning buildings. Survivors shepherded a group of wounded to the nearby children's clinic, but it caught fire immediately and the invalids inside were roasted to death, screaming like lunatics for help as they burned alive. In the metro, now converted to a cavernous air shelter, people were packed so tight Many literally suffocated. Some citizens braved the bombs and left the shelter. Better the chance of a shell fragment than the sure crush of the teeming metro. As they fled, they looked to the slopes of the Volga and saw a terrible sight. The hill was covered in a river of liquid flames. It was like hell was bursting up from the ground and materializing in front of them. Onlookers said they expected to see demons and Satan himself rise up from the ground and drag the city down around their ears. The blazing hills was caused by the rupture of oil tanks that had caught on fire. I'm beginning to think this is going to be bad. 
It's going to be terrible. And in his diary that evening, the aggressive Luftwaffe General Freeherr von Richthofen summed up the results of his pilot's operation over the stricken city. Quote, a sudden alert sent out by the 8th Air Corps put the whole of our fleet four in the air with a result that simply paralyzed the Russians. End quote. It was true. The city was still alive, but warped like a wounded man still stumbling on. 40,000 people were dead from one night. The size of a population of a large American suburb, simply gone. Listener, I just gave you a great gift. Things could be so terribly worse for you. Now you know. It's a blessing to see a beautiful woman sit across from you in the metro. It's a blessing to have full bellies and running water. Remember that as you make your way through your day. Now, the commander of the German forces at Stalingrad has a plan. He would forge a 40-mile-long corridor from the Don River to the Volga River. His forces would then seal off Stalingrad from the north and prevent reinforcements from reaching the city. It was a good plan, but it required perfect coordination among participating units. In the north, the Soviets counterattacked using unpainted T-34 tanks that simply rolled off the assembly line and straight into battle. The tanks led the charge with a dress train of masses of ill-prepared infantry in support. At first, the Russian force made headway, but this soon changed when the German guns began to dial in on their position. Groups of hundreds of Russians linked arms and marched across a grassy field towards a German position. An officer observed them with binoculars as they advanced. Their songs fascinated the German soldier. As the officer stared at the oncoming Russians, geysers of earth suddenly blossomed among them. The steppe grass turned red, and the singing was replaced by the terrible shrieks of the dying. The counterattack had failed. Well, yeah, marching straight into the enemy with your arms linked and no guns or anything, probably not the best way to counter. They did have guns. They had guns, but still. Well, they were standing straight up linked arms? They Well, I don't know how that happened, but they still <laughs> they could have had their guns slung on their back. Yeah. By the last week of August, large sections of Stalingrad were completely destroyed. Raging fire still engulfed the flattened blocks of the downtown sections. The waterworks were broken, and firemen could do little except try and pull survivors from the wreckage. And that's when the Germans left the city, won the battle, and won the war? Wrong. Here's what really happened. Antasia Modena was there. She spent most of her time rounding up hundreds of orphans, most of whom just sat beside the bodies of their parents and stared at their mutilated bodies. One child kept shaking the arm of his mother and crying, Mama, Mama, wake up, Mama. I'm scared. Wake up, Mama. Other children smooth the clothes of their dead parents, trying to make them all better, the way their parents had done for them after they had skinned a knee. Some children refused to leave their parents, a testament to the enduring loyalty of family. Meanwhile, at the main ferry across the river, thousands of non-essential civilians were being evacuated. They left pathetic notes tacked up to trees and the sides of buildings. Invariably, the notes were simple. Cheer up, Mama. We're all right. Look for us at Moscow. That's when the German plane swooped down on the civilians at the main ferry landing. There was no place to hide, no cover anywhere. Clusters of bombs enveloped them, and the shore ran red with blood. The German Stukas returned and strafed the crowd with machine gun fire. I want you to think about a concert you've been to. 
the kind of concert where people are packed in tight and you really can't control your movements. If you've ever felt a crowd surge towards a stage behind you and push you forward, smashing you into the people in front of you, that's what it felt like. It's hot. Breathing is hard. The sweat of the people around you wallows into your face and clothes. Now imagine a plane dropping bombs on you, exploding around you. Imagine your fellow concert goers mad with fright stampeding around you. Now, after it's over, imagine machine guns indiscriminately tearing through the crowd. Imagine the terror you would feel. And then the Germans went around the city and won the battle, right? <laughs> Wait, why do you keep saying that? No! I don't know. It seems like they should win the battle at some point. <laughs> oh, my God. On August 27th, the new Soviet commander at Stalingrad arrived. It was the famous Marshal Georgi Zhukov, a 46-year-old peasant's son. Zhukov was the best general the Soviets had. In 1939, his troops were surprised by a Japanese attack in Manchuria. Zhukov turned the tide and crushed the Japanese. He was promoted at a time when the majority of officers in the Soviet army were being executed by Stalin. In September 1941, German tanks were probing into Leningrad until Zhukov showed up like Darth Vader, executing derelict officers, firing generals, and forging an iron defense line that saved the city. Later that same year, Zhukov was put in charge of the defense of Moscow as the Germans literally overran the suburbs. Zhukov rallied the troops, personally inspecting weak points in the line. He reinforced the most pressing areas. Aided by winter, Zhukov stopped the German onslaught at the gates of the city. Afterwards, he was awarded a new title, Deputy Supreme Commander of the Red Army, second in command only to Stalin himself. Now Zhukov was back to blunt another German attack. He sat down to play death chess with yet another German general, and his adversary was named Friedrich Paulus. A junior officer in World War I, by September 1939, Paulus was promoted to a major general. Paulus was known as an intelligent planner. He had helped develop many of the plans the Germans had implemented in the previous two years of war, and his immediate superiors recommended him for promotion, though he had little experience with commanding large forces of men. General Paulus was the man who would check Zhukov when no one else could. Already he had captured over 250,000 Soviet prisoners of war in a series of thrusts towards Stalingrad. Paulus's planning and attention to detail were first rate. Stalingrad would fall. Zhukov had his work cut out for him. Working with Marshal Veselevsky and Stalin himself, Zhukov slaved to shore up the Soviet defenses. Working around the clock, going days with little or no sleep, Russian morale had plummeted. A steady stream of deserters continuously poured into the German lines, swelling again the number of prisoners the Germans had taken. That's when the Soviet draconian system slipped into an obscene disregard for human life. One division commander, plagued by high desertion numbers, assembled his men together. The officer berated the men as traitors to the motherland for deserting their comrades. The colonel charged them with the same guilt as those who had already run away because they had thought about running away. You had even thought about it. Abruptly, the officer finished yelling at the men, and just as abruptly, he snatched his pistol from his holster. At the end of the first row of men, the colonel began to count one, two, three, four. As he reached the tenth man, the colonel, BAM! shot him in the head. As the victim crumpled to the ground, the colonel picked up the count again. One, two, three. At ten, he shot another man and then continued the macabre count. No one fled or tried to move places. The nurses watching the scene began to sob uncontrollably. 
When the last bullet in the revolver thudded into a man's brain, the commander shoved the pistol back into the holster and walked away. Dismissed, an officer yelled out. A little old school decimation. <laughs> exactly. The men tripped over themselves to escape the death field. Six of their comrades lay prone in the grass, their eyes staring vacantly up into heaven. They wouldn't be joining their comrades. They were dismissed forever. On August 29th, General Herman Hoth sent his 4th Panzer Army careening 20 miles across the steppe towards Stalingrad. How many AT-ATs did he have? <laughs> Zero. Fearing encirclement, the Soviets were forced to withdraw from the south and southwest into the city itself. Even the withdrawal was costly. Many Tauntauns were killed. Stop it. By the next day, the Germans had captured thousands of stragglers wandering the steppe. Hundreds of trucks, tanks, and artillery pieces were taken by Hoth without a fight. You don't even want to know about the death toll the rampant Wampa attacks took on all these people. (laughs) There you go, Star Wars fans. After meeting Paulus' 6th Army on the steppe just outside the city, Hoth wheeled his divisions eastward for a drive to the Volga that aimed to split the 62nd and 64th Soviet armies. They were guarding the shield generator. This didn't happen, because after driving for miles across the flat steppe land, Hoth and his panzers hit rolling, congested suburban towns. Here was a taste of things to come. From now on, there would be no more 10-mile-a-day advances. Now progress would be measured in one or two miles. And when the panzers bogged down in narrow streets, Russian soldiers doused them with Molotov cocktails. From the windows, snipers picked off unwary foot soldiers. The Germans resorted to firing artillery at point-blank range towards buildings a mere 50 yards away. The Germans didn't go through the suburbs of Stalingrad. They demolished them and rolled over the wreckage. If Hawthorne had the huevos to kill General Ozzel like Vader did, this wouldn't happen. <laughs> but there was a price to pay. Werner Howe, a participant in the German drive through the suburbs, described it this way, quote, During our drive on the outskirts of Stalingrad, we were frequently without company commanders or even platoon leaders. They had all been killed. Every one of us believed we would be the next to go. Fear stalked us like animals, end wampus. quote. Like wampus. And the officers leading these guys are getting decimated. So you have the German army here at the beginning of the battle. They're losing all their their officer cadres from the terrible street fighting already before yeah. they're in the city. Russians like picking off officers. <laughs> it's it's insane. However, on the night of September 9th, Hal and his men dug into the banks of Vo- the Volga River itself. They had made it. They had done it. By September 3rd, the Germans were only two miles from the city center itself. Here, there would be no blitzkrieg tactics, just a hard, painful slog, house by house, street by street. I hope your ears are ready, because I'm about to make your speakers bleed. That same day, Joseph Stalin demanded to know what Marshal Zhukov was doing. He had only been at Stalingrad for five days, and he had barely established his positions, let alone performed a miracle to stop the German drive. Stalin might as well have asked Zhukov to feed his army with two fish and five loaves of bread. Stalin didn't want to hear it. The Germans have to be driven back now! No delay can be tolerated! To delay now is tantamount to a crime! 
Zukov pled with the dictator for more time. Please give me more time. Stalin gave him two days. On September 5th, Zukov unleashed human wave assaults, which smashed into the northern German lines. The assaults did nothing but make widows and orphans across the Soviet Union. The Germans had held, and held easily. While things were looking up on the Stalingrad front, Hitler's other army group, Army Group A, were chasing the Russians across the desert and steppe above the Caucasus mountain range. Their goal was the oil centers at Maykop, Grozny, Batum, and Baku. The problem was the Russians kept retreating, lengthening the German supply lines to the breaking point. Then, when the Germans finally reached Maykop, the oil center had been laid waste. Hitler looked at his staff generals in wonder. Why was there no great breakthroughs? Where were the huge number of prisoners? Why wasn't the drive working? He should have remembered the sayings of the Spartans. When Agilius was wounded in the battle by the Thebans, the Spartan, Androclides, said to his face, You have your just reward in your wound for the lessons in fighting you have given to the people who had no desire to fight us and no knowledge even of fighting. For it appeared that they had been made warlike by the continual campaigns of Agilis against them. The lesson of the story, don't continually wage war on a people or you will teach them how to fight. Hitler was figuring this out the hard way. Yeah, he was. In early September, the commander of the Soviets in the city of Stalingrad lost his nerve. As his forces melted from the German onslaught, General Lopatin began to believe defeat was inevitable. His defeatism was his undoing. He was fired and Chukov was put in charge of the defense of the city. A peasant who had worked as a bellhop and shop apprentice before the Bolshevik Revolution, Chukov had distinguished himself in the Civil War. After the war, he graduated from the prestigious Frunze Military Academy and commanded forces in the Russo-Finnish War. Strong-willed and totally devoted to victory, he never lost heart. He fully believed in the face of all evidence to the contrary the Soviets would win at Stalingrad. He also didn't lead a human wave charge. That He didn't. He came up with some novel tactics, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Okay. At the same time, General Paulus realized his army was terribly exposed on the left flank. Soviet forces had numerous bridgeheads over the Don River and threatened the Axis line, which was held by ill-equipped Italians, Hungarians and Romanian troops. The problem was exasperated by the supply situation. The 6th Army needed 750 tons of supplies a day. And all the supplies for the men in Stalingrad came through one railhead at a town called Cheer. If the line was cut or Cheer, Cheer fell, the Germans would be cut off from resupply. Paulus voiced his concerns to Hitler, who promised to look into it, but never really did. In mid-September, Paulus thought the city would fall in a few days. When it did, he could reinforce his flanks with the German troops freed from the Stalingrad campaign. The point was the city had to fall and fall fast. But the Soviets had other ideas. They were going to fight to the knife. On September 13th at 6.30 a.m., the Germans dropped the hammer on Chukov. They attacked towards the vital main ferry link linking Stalingrad with the far shore. A massive artillery barrage cut Chukov's communications, and he lost control of the battle. Still, the Soviets clung to the city. Now the Germans could taste victory. They were so close to total control of the city, like a nail, they would hammer the Soviets out of the city in a series of irresistible blows. On September 14th, the German troops entered downtown Stalingrad on a two-mile-wide front. Their goal was to gain the river a few blocks away. 
Used to fighting in the open steppes, the Germans had no idea what they were in for. Once they reached the city, the casualties increased exponentially. Snipers shot at them from rubble in fourth floor windows and then disappeared. They shot at them through little kinks and chinks in the rubble. You couldn't even see where the battle, where the fight shot was coming from. Hidden artillery blew gaping holes in their ranks and still the Germans came on. And what they found was a battle they had never seen before. Realizing his own forces were hopelessly outgunned, by the superior German equipment, Chukov broke his forces into groups of 10 to 20 men and distributed them among the ruins and buildings of Stalingrad. Think of it like Lando Calrissian's decision to attack the Star Destroyers instead of the Death Star and the Return of the Jedi. Here's how one historian described these storm groups. Quote, the storm groups were Chukov's answer to the German superiority in troops, artillery, and planes. Chukov had seen the German superiority at work on the steppe and was convinced he could never compete with German firepower. He countered this by creating a series of many fortresses commanding street intersections. The small storm groups would act as breakwaters, funneling German tanks into approach roads that were already gridded by Soviet artillery. This funneling of German tanks into pre-organized grids finally forced a weakness on the superior German machines. Chukov had found something no one else had. With the tanks bogged down, the storm troops in their fortresses could deal with the German infantry exposed and without armor. Also, by fighting at close range, the Soviets nullified the German air advantage. The Germans wouldn't drop bombs on their own men. End quote. Wow. Admiral Akbar was really good in this battle. Uh, tell me this guy's not a genius. He figured it out. Something no one else did. How to bog down and stop the Germans? Well, he couldn't repel firepower of that magnitude. And so, but yeah, but to even conceive of that, you know what? If we can't defeat them, we'll hug them. It was genius. Yeah. Now, this is what makes Chukov a genius. Where others failed, he would win by changing tactics. No one had taught him these things. He came up with them himself. Oh, Chukov sounds like a great commander. Admiral Akbar be proud. So, so. He basically scattered the Soviet troops in and around the in and around the buildings to be able to choke points for when Germans came through and just inflating fire. All right, he hugged the Germans and he created a series of mini fortresses. Right, so they would they would bust out the windows, they would fortify the windows and seal off the entrances. So it would be super hard to get in, and the guys in inside the buildings are basically gone. So they're, they're like going to fight to the death. They're shooting through little chinks and gaps in the wall. All right, holes, little holes. Yeah, well, little Are holes of the technical term. For that? <laughs> Whatever, man. Holes, chinks, cracks. Whatever you call it cracks. They're shooting through those, and well, you know, the Germans to advance on that, they're exposed, right? Uh-huh. So, and they set up usually an inner intersection. So they had three lines of fire. All right. Yeah, the Germans do. No, no, the Soviets did. The Soviets are saying so. They're in these okay, yeah. many fortresses that were formerly in the bombed out buildings. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they're holding off an intersection for three lines of fire and one line of retreat. And often they wouldn't retreat unless the building was coming down around them and they were literally on fire. Their clothes were smoldering. That's only when they would retreat backwards. So, so what you're trying to tell me is the Germans should have gone around the city and won the battle. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked about that earlier. He couldn't just go around the city, right? Because he has to, he has to get those troops mm-hmm. back to the Don River. And right, so if he had encircled Stalingrad, it would have taken uh, at least a month to decimate the Stalingrad pocket he had created. Put it this way, the Germans held out against the Soviets for two months, right? Yeah. So if 
he had encircled them, they could have held out against him, and meanwhile, his left flank would be exposed. So what he's trying to do is destroy the Soviets mm-hmm. on, in, the city, in the city, take the city, and then use those troops as reinforcements for the Romanians, the Italians, who are weakly holding this line mm-hmm. that has a Soviet bridgehead. That's why he had to take Stalingrad quick. He couldn't just go around. He had to wipe out the troops in Stalingrad in order to reinforce these guys. Little did he know. Little did he know. All right. So a half a mile north of Chukov's command bunker, a group of NKVD soldiers braced for the final German onslaught to the river. The Germans attacked through the town square, sending artillery shells to blanket the area before moving in. All across the buildings at the edge of the front line, the Soviets ate their hands as they began to hear a chant from seemingly empty buildings around them. The Germans were screaming like football hooligans. Rus, Rus, Volga, Bubu, Rus, Rus, Volga, Bubu. Russians, Russians, drown in the Volga. Russians, Russians, drown in the Volga. Then the onslaught came, unable to be stemmed, uncontrollable, like a God-sent plague. The Germans came. Into the artillery fire, the bullets, they came on, and they won. Despite their terrible losses, they pushed forward. Sixty NKVD men were defending the ferry landing, their ammunition running low, their casualties mounting. They drew attention like beautiful women. Then the ammunition resupply came, and the NKVD men rallied for the counterattack. They found a 76-millimeter gun and blew the face off the state bank where the Germans had turned it into a fortress. Then reinforcements came to them from the Volga. The Germans saw the reinforcements, too, and raked them with mortar fire, the shrapnel tearing holes into the ranks of the boats crossing the Volga. Then the surviving Soviet reinforcements waded ashore. They were the guards' 42nd Regiment, and they barely paused to talk to the dumbfounded NKVD men. The men couldn't believe that reinforcements could have come through the terrible artillery across the river. They attacked the state bank in bloody hand-to-hand fighting. No one knew it, but the Germans were near collapse. They had lost an entire battalion of men in one day of battle. 2,500 men were massacred, and they hadn't even reached the river. One German captain named Munch looked across the town square and saw hundreds of his men dead and wounded in the street. Then he looked at the next objective, the massive railroad station teeming with fanatics willing to die for the motherland. Munch decided to call in an airstrike. The bombers came, but they bombed the wrong target. They bombed his men. After the bombing, Munch only had 50 men left. He called the attack off. His battalion was decimated. 500 yards away, the Russian 13th Guards were digging in. On Mamev Hill, the Russians dug into the side while the Germans took the crest. They would hug each other on the hill for the duration of the battle. The Germans attacked the Russians digging into the hillside, but were repulsed. However, the Russians suffered horrendous casualties. On September 15th, the slaughter continued. Soviet reinforcements were decimated by artillery as the ferry transported essential equipment and troops across the river. The shelling on the riverside was so thick, the air was literally filled with shrapnel. One six-man team ran a half of a mile along the river's edge, and the, sh- and the shelling killed three of the men. Meanwhile, the 13th Soviet's guards were ordered to hold the cavernous train station at all costs. Under the command of Lieutenant Kismic Dragon, the men assembled for their duty in their last days on Earth. William Craig picks up the story, quote, 
Dragon assembled his troops and moved towards the concrete terminal just west of Red Square. They came under vicious crossfire from several buildings, and Dragon realized the Germans were already in the train station. He kept on anyway, moving closer to the terminal. Dragon and his men rushed the buildings. Grenades exploded. Machine gun tracers split the darkness and suddenly the Germans were gone. The Russians swiftly scattered into the maze of freight cars and waited for the dawn, end quote. The next day, the Germans responded to Dragon's attack with a massive bombing that blew down the walls and buckled the iron girders. Then the Germans surrounded Dragon on three sides, so Dragon withdrew his men across the street to a nail factory. He had no food, no water, and little ammunition. The Russians were so thirsty they fired bullets into the sewer system. In a desperate attempt to find water, they found none. Dragon described the initial fighting like this, quote, the Germans had cut us from our neighbors. The supply of ammunition had been cut off. Every bullet was worth its weight in gold. I gave the order to economize on ammunition. In the evening, the enemy again tried to rush us. As our numbers grew smaller, we shortened our lines of defense. We began to fall back to the Volga, being sure to take positions where the German artillery and aircraft couldn't get at us. We moved back, occupying one building after another, turning them into strongholds. A soldier would crawl out of an occupied position only when the ground was on fire under him and his clothes were smoldering. During the day, the Germans managed to occupy only two blocks. We made them pay in blood for each brick. End quote. The 13th Guards were systematically butchered in Red Square. Already 6,000 Guardsmen had been killed, but they had bought the Russians' invaluable time to strengthen their defenses. One of the fortresses was bathed in blood. It was a massive grain elevator whose cement silos rose high on the plain in the city. For nearly a week, since September 14th, 50 Russians took up position in the tower and resisted three entire German divisions, numbering thousands of men. Reinforced on the night of September 17th by a platoon of Marines, the men joked with each other while the shells tore into their shelter. For the next three days, German artillery pounded the stronghold, set the grain on fire with incendiary shells, and riddled the tower itself with high explosives. German soldiers broke into the elevator, but the defenders drove them out in vicious hand-to-hand fighting. On the night of September 20th, the defenders ran out of water. Dying of thirst, they ventured out in a desperate hunt for water. While they were gone, the Germans occupied the grain elevator. The fortress had fallen. On September 21st, Dragon came under intense pressure. German tanks and bombers hammered the nail factory. By late afternoon, Dragon was cut off from his comrades. Dragon's heart wormed into his stomach as he helplessly watched the Germans sweep into the battalion headquarters at the Univermog department store. They took no prisoners. Almost every Russian inside the building was slaughtered. Dragon took command of the battalion. Back at Chukov's headquarters, the battalion was written off as completely lost. But Dragon wasn't lost. He kept fighting. He led his men from building to building, giving way only when the Germans set fire to his hiding places. The battle raged past the fountains with its statue of children dancing in a circle, past the city Soviet, the theater, and the bodies hanging in the hedges. Finally, Dragon led his 40 surviving men into a basement and sat down behind a heavy machine gun, waiting to die. He described the end of his battle this way, quote, we occupied three-story buildings at a crossroads with great positions. You could fire at any approaching target. I ordered all entrances to be barricaded and the windows to be adapted so that we could fire through them. 
Two groups, six in each, went up to the third floor and broke down walls in order to hurl bricks and stones at the Germans when they approached. Difficult days began. Attack after attack broke unendingly like waves against us. This lasted five days and nights, and we felt we could go on no longer. We never thought of escape. We only thought of how we could kill more Germans, end quote. What did this fighting look like from the other side? I'll let William Hoffman tell you. He was there, advancing into the heart of Red Square, personally facing off with Dragon and his men. His diary is remarkable, because you can witness one man's confrontation with the impossible. September 11th. Our battalion is fighting in Stalingrad. We can already see the Volga firing is going on all the time. Wherever you look, it is fire and flames. Russian cannon and machine guns are firing out of the burning city. Fanatics. September 13th, an unlucky day. This morning, Katusha rockets attacked our company, causing heavy losses. 27 dead and 50 wounded. The Russians are fighting desperately like wild beasts. They never give up but come close and then they throw grenades into our position. Lieutenant Cross was killed yesterday and there's no company commander. September 16th. Our battalion plus tanks is attacking the grain elevator from which smoke is pouring. The grain in it is burning. The Russians seem to have set light to it themselves. Barbarism. The battalion is suffering heavy losses. There's not more than 60 men left in each company. The elevator is occupied not by men but by devils that no flames or bullets can destroy. September 18th. Fighting's going on inside the elevator. The Russians inside are condemned men. The battalion commander told us the commissars have ordered those men to die in the elevator. If all the buildings of Stalingrad are defended like this, then none of our soldiers will get back to Germany. September 20th. The battle for the elevator is still going on. The Russians are firing on all sides. We stay in our cellar. You can't go into the street. Sergeant Major Nunchk was killed today running across the street. Poor fellow, he's got three kids. 22nd. Russian resistance in the elevator is broken. Our troops are advancing towards the Volka. Our old soldiers have said they never experienced such bitter fighting before. September 26. Our regiment is involved in constant heavy fighting. After the elevator was taken, the Russians continued to defend themselves just as stubbornly. You don't see them at all. They have established themselves in houses and cellars and are firing on all sides, including from our rear, these barbarians. They use gangster methods. In the blocks captured two days ago, Russian soldiers materialized from nowhere, and fighting flared up with fresh vigor. Our men are being killed, not only in the firing line, but in the rear, in buildings we have already occupied. Stalingrad is hell. The wounded are the lucky ones. End quote. Another German eyewitness described the battle for downtown Stalingrad. We have fought during 15 days for a single house. Already by the third day, 54 German corpses were strewn in the cellars, on the landings, and in the staircases. The front is a corridor between burnout rooms. It is the thin ceiling between two floors. There's a ceaseless struggle from noon to night, from story to story, faces black with sweat. We bombard each other with grenades in the middle of explosions. Clouds of dust and smoke, floods of blood, fragments of human beings... Ask any soldier what half an hour of hand-to-hand struggle means in such a fight. The street is no longer measured by meters, but by corpses. Stalingrad's not a town. By day, it's an enormous cloud of burning, blinding smoke. It is a vast furnace lit by the reflection of the flames. And when night arrives, one of those scorching, howling, bleeding nights, the dogs plunge into the Volga and swim desperately to gain the other bank. The nights of Stalingrad are a terror for them. Animals flee this hell. Only men endure. 
the fighting was so bad, the men actually wanted to get wounded and taken out. Maybe you're going to a stupid boss today. Maybe a girl you love hates your face. Your problems mean nothing. Hoffman had real problems. Be thankful it wasn't you dancing with the Russians in Red Square. Now I want to tell you about the ferry crossing. All reinforcements, all ammunition, all the Soviet food were ferried across the Volga River. I want you to imagine being one of the conscripts loaded into a bullet-ridden barge and dragged across the river. Shells bursting all around you. German guns obviously zeroed in on your position. Men biting their knuckles, pissing themselves. Here's how one author described the crossing of Petrov, an artillery man. Quote, when ordered into Stalingrad, Petrov went to the dock and saw that the other shore of the Volga was a solid wall of flames. Though scared to death, he knew he would go across, but other Russians would not. And Petrov watched as the NKVD guards fired in the air over the deserters and then killed them like dogs when they ran from the landing. After Alexei climbed the barge, NKVD guards lined the rails to prevent anyone from jumping overboard. Bombers strafed the slow-moving steamers and tugs. German mortars behind Mamev Hill fingered the river for them. Petrov crouched down to hide from shrapnel singing by his ears. Men slipped off the sides to drown. Bullets thudded into flesh, and soldiers sagged against neighbors and died without a word. Petrov saw the Volga water clearly. It was a swirling mixture of water and bright red blood. His boat took two hours to reach the landing site. The dead covered the deck and the living scram. Off. Nearly half of Petrov's regiment had died crossing the river. Three scouts went out to gauge German strength. Two came back. Petrov picked up his field glasses and scanned no man's land for the missing man. He was out there, spread-eagled on the ground. The Germans had thrust a bayoneted rifle into his stomach and left him face up in the open. Petrov and his squad went berserk. Screaming, they jumped from the holes and ran forward. A tidal wave of men... Bursting into a line of houses, they killed anyone who rose before them. And when several Germans raised their hands in surrender, Petrov slaughtered them like dogs. Then Alexei saw a beautiful woman laying on the ground and staring into space. What was wrong with her? And then Petrov understood she was dead. He stood beside the body and wept. And then he ran off to kill more Germans. In the hallway of a house, he heard a German praying, Oh God, let me live after this war. Petrov rammed the door open and saw a kneeling man who looked up at him and pleadingly. Petrov disintegrated his face with a rifle burst. Wild-eyed, he ran from room to room, killing anyone in a gray uniform. At the end of his killing spree, Petrov collapsed, exhausted. End quote. Kill them all. Talk about battle. Yeah, man. On September 25th, the Germans pressed the advance further, ever further towards the ferry and the Soviet resupply base. Only a few Soviets held out. Dragon had ten men left in his basement as he munched on burned grain. The Germans rushed his position. Dragon's men threw their last grenades and heaved bricks through the windows at the Germans. Dragon fired his last 250 bullets at the enemy. Out of ammunition and wounded in the hand, he propped himself up and waited for the inevitable death. One of Dragon's men scratched on the wall. Rod Mitsev's guardsmen fought and died for their motherland here. A German tank clanked up to Dragon's position and fired on him point blank. Suddenly the world turned dark as if God had turned the lights of the world off. The building had collapsed on him. He was buried alive and losing air fast. Using their hands, the men dug their way out. It was night. 
The men stumbled out and raced to the river. There was a German guarding the path down to the water. The Soviets brought him down silently with a knife. They worked to construct a makeshift raft while they heard the Germans searching for them overhead. Dragon and his six men pushed the raft into the Volga and drifted downstream as the Germans fired at them, but they made it. There were six of them left. Ten thousand men in his division had gone to Stalingrad. Approximately 250 survived. This is the story of Stalingrad in a data point. Imagine the smell of Red Square with tens of thousands of dead bodies rotting in the street. Brown puddles where water had mingled with blood potmarked the ground. All across the square, crazy patterns of red scribbled the ground like random spray paint. These were the trails the wounded made as they dragged themselves away from the battle. I want you to see hordes of rats gorging on the bodies at night. This is the battle that formed our world today. This is the battle that Russians can never forget, and we shouldn't either. Finally, on September 24th, the Germans reached the Volga and attacked the critical main ferry. As the Soviets were evacuating the wounded, the Germans poured machine gun fire into hundreds of wounded Russians. Russian soldiers formed a defense line and held the Germans off as the remaining wounded were loaded. And when the Germans finally broke through, they vomited from the stench of ether and blood and the smell of those who laid unburied. At last, the main ferry was taken. The German 6th Army held the Volga shoreline for several miles north and south of the Red Square. On September 24th, the Germans raised a huge swastika over the Univermog department store in the middle of the city. But Paulus wasn't celebrating. The cost had been horrendous, too much to even think about. More than 7,700 Germans had been killed in only six weeks. A further 31,000 had been wounded in the terrible fighting. 10% of the 6th Army had been lost. Still, the city was unconquered. The factory district was the ultimate challenge. It was a puzzle of death devised by Satan himself. And when I say factory district, I don't want you to think of a little warehouse with a few machine shops. These are massive industrial plants. One factory was literally a mile long. This was labyrinthine streets intersecting labyrinthine buildings. Think of the movie Hellraiser. Every nook of the district was an ambush. Every corner grinned death. In some places, the Soviet line was only 200 yards deep. Only two football fields stood between the Germans and the river. At the northern factories, fresh divisions were forming a second line of defense. Some of the Soviet Union's most elite troops were poured into the factory zone. By October, 100,000 new troops had been ferried across the river, an influx equaling seven full divisions and two brigades. They were killed so quickly that Chukov still only had 53,000 troops left who could bear arms. In less than than a month. The 62nd Army had lost more than 8,000 men killed, wounded, or missing. Conditions of the men were horrendous. Most never washed or changed their clothes. They were infested with lice. The gray bugs swarmed over the men's bodies. And when the medical obituary of the 6th Army was debated in Berlin by consultants late the next January, they charted an exponential rate of increase in the deaths from infectious diseases. The Russians themselves had noticed the number of ill Germans with surprise and spoke of a German sickness that seemed to stalk the troops. The most vulnerable appear to have been the youngest soldiers, those aged between 17 and 22. They alone accounted for 55% of these deaths. Noise assailed their nerves constantly. The air is filled 
rode a panzer officer. With the infernal howling of diving stukas and the thunder of flak and artillery, the roar of engines, the rattle of tank tracks, the shriek of the launcher and the stall and organ, the chatter of submachine guns back and forth, and all the time one feels the heat of a city burning at every point around you. The screams of the wounded affected men the most. It's not a human sound, one German wrote in his diary, just the dull cry of suffering of a wild animal. In such circumstances, the longing for home became acute. Home is so far away. Oh, beautiful home, wrote one wistfully. Only now do we know how quite wonderful it was. Now the Germans swung their attack to the northern factories, using round-the-clock artillery fire in an attempt to break up the Soviet defenses. William Craig takes up the story, quote, on October 2nd, German shells carpeted the industrial zone. Behind the October plant, some huge oil tanks were punctured. Chukov had been assured the oil tanks were empty. They weren't. Flaming fuel rolled swiftly down the hill to the Volga, where it became a ghastly wave. Across the river, onlookers screamed a warning to a large rowboat making for the eastern shore, but it was too far out to turn back. And when the wall of flame reached it, the oars reared up like fire wings as the doomed passengers tried to beat the fire out. Through the smoke, spectators saw the sides of the boat blaze from the flaming oil. The boat's occupants stood up and jumped. Their heads bobbed briefly in the middle of the inferno, and then the flames passed relentlessly over the tragic scene. End quote. Adolf Hitler sat in his command post, the rightly named Wolf's Lair in Ukraine. He saw the exposed flanks of the German army and knew there was only one way to solve the problem. Stalingrad had to fall and fall soon. Quickly, he issued the order... Stalingrad must be taken by October 15th, no excuses. The Germans began a massive build-up to complete the Fuhrer's order. This was the day of doom. Playtime was over. On October 14th, the Germans went all in. They would conquer or die. The modern historian describes what happened on the 14th, quote, the Stukas came at first light in the morning, and hundreds of black planes hovered over Stalingrad, diving on the city like terrible eagles, sirens screaming. They dove again and again, although the day was sunny. A blanket of smoke from bomb bursts cut visibility to a hundred yards. By 11.30 a.m., after 200 German tanks had broken through Russian defenses around the tractor works, the German 389th Infantry Division burst into the mile-long labyrinth of shops. The works quickly became a charnel house. Millions of shards from the enormous glass skylights in the roof littered the concrete floors, and blood smeared the walls. Cannon shells and tracer bullets ricocheted through cafeterias, and German and Russians lunged at each other across chairs and tables. The 8,000 commandos of the Soviet Guards Division met the Germans head-on in the factory complex, and in the next 48 hours, 5,000 of them were either killed or wounded. The killing went on for three days. The Soviets had lost 13,000 men. Almost one quarter of Chukov's 53,000 troops. On the night of October 14th alone, 3,500 wounded had come to the new ferry point the Russians had set up after the main one fell. By October 20th, the Germans had seized all of the tractor plant shops and broken into the Barricade factory and the Red October factory. They had to clear these massive industrial plants room by bloody room. William Hoffman was one of the soldiers hacking his way through the Stalingrad factories. This is how he described it, writing the day each event happened. October 5th. Our battalion has gone into the attack four times and got stopped each time. Russian snipers hit anyone who shows themselves carelessly from behind shelter. October 14th. 
It's been fantastic since morning. Our aeroplanes and artillery have been hammering the Russian positions for hours on end. Everything inside is being blotted from the face of the earth. October 22nd. Our regiment has failed to break into the factory. We have lost many men. Every time you move, you have to jump over bodies. You can scarcely breathe in the daytime. There's there's nowhere and no one to remove the bodies, so they're, they're left there to rot. Who would have thought three months ago that instead of the joy of victory, we would have to endure such sacrifice and torture, the end of which is nowhere in sight? The soldiers are calling Stalingrad the mass grave of the Fairmont. There are very few men left in the companies. October 27th. Our troops have captured the whole of the barricade factory, but we can't break through to the Volga. The Russians are not men, but some kind of cast-iron creatures. They never get tired. And they're not afraid of fire. We're absolutely exhausted. Our regiment now has barely the strength of a company. The Russian artillery at the other side of the Volga won't let you lift your head. October 28th. Every soldier sees himself as a condemned man. My only hope is to be wounded and taken back to the rear. Oh, I wish I could be wounded. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Hitler wanted everything taken by October 15th. And here's Hoffman still fighting for those same positions on October 28th. At what point did the Germans win, go around the city? And win the battle. <laughs> stop, stop. That doesn't happen, okay? It's never going to happen. You keep saying that, but we've got a few more pages. I'm I'm, I'm optimistic. <laughs> All right. So Hoffman's painting a picture for us. Absolute exhaustion. Exhaustion that pinches faces and makes men age 10 years and 10 weeks. How can I even describe the indescribable? How can I make you understand? Just picture blood flowing out of your speakers. Just picture your own mother weeping because her entire family was killed, her house burned, and even the clothes on her backs are rags. Hunger, hunger stabbing her stomach, her face pinched with age. That's something of what this battle was, and we haven't even gotten to the really bad part yet. This is just the beginning. October began to bleed into November and still Russian diehards hung onto the factory district. The barricaded gun factory was the scene of terrible fighting. Heaps of red slag dotted the landscape. The few smoke stacks that hadn't fallen stood like ancient Greek ruins over the scene. Shell holes were everywhere. Men lived in the holes and Russian snipers picked them off as they dove for cover. Heinz Neist was a 31-year-old veteran who entered the factory district in late October. With ten men, he tore into the ground floor of an industrial shop. While his men set up the radio, they heard something upstairs. It was the Russians. They were in the building with them. Quietly, the Germans snuck up the stairwell and threw in a satchel charge. Immediately, the Russians threw it back down, and the explosion wounded several Germans. Heinz always set the charge too long. <laughs> this is one major downfall. Neist and his men were so tired they let the Russians stay up there. This is what Chukov's strategy of hugging the enemy looked like. Men occupied the same buildings. In the morning, Neist and the Russians picked up where they left off. Two Russians crept down the stairs and fired bursts from Tommy guns and then retreated. The Germans were terrified to go up the stairwell. They knew the Soviets had set up an ambush. Neist requested reinforcements, and then German snipers took up position across the street. One by one, shots rang out throughout the day. The snipers were killing the Russians on the second floor one at a time. Periodically, Nice heard blood-chilling screams from the second floor, then utter silence. He strained his ears to hear, and adrenaline pumped in a constant stream through his body. His nerves so stressed he thought he would piss himself, but the Russians stopped moving up there. After a few hours of silence, the Germans crept up the stairwell. 
Their hearts were in their throats as they came to a door. They counted to three. Each number was a stab of fear and adrenaline. One, two, three. The Germans smashed the door in and pie sliced the room beyond, expertly covering the angles as they rushed into the room. Seven Russians lay on the floor shot to death. The snipers had gotten them all. Still, the Russians had sapped enormous manpower commitments from the Germans and delayed their advance for two days. Repeat this process across the front, and you can see how the Germans were constantly held up. Not stopped, but always bloodily impeded. Eventually, they would take the city, but it would take so much time and so much blood, would it be worth it? Well, yeah, when they eventually go around the city and win the battle. <laughs> Stop. On October 26, Lieutenant Wilhelm Kreiser led his men back into the Barricade Gun Factory. Stukas were supposed to drop bombs on the Soviets before the German infantry advanced, but they fell short right in front of Kreiser. At 10 a.m., thousands of German guns fired at the Russian positions. Kreiser had never heard or even seen anything like it. Shells seemed to come out of the ground itself. It lasted for half an hour. Suddenly it stopped. A strange silence filled the air. No one moved. Then the German soldiers flung themselves at the Soviet strong point. His men pushed past the factory to the river. The bombardment had worked. They had defeated the Soviets, or so Kreiser thought. In reality, the Russians were in total shock from the artillery bombardment and had burrowed like worms into basements and holes. The Germans had passed over them. Suddenly, the Russians sprang like prairie dogs from their holes behind the Germans, dealing death into the German ranks from behind. The Germans at the Volga held on, their backs against the river, desperately engaging the Soviets behind them. Finally, night fell and a few infiltrated back to the German lines. The rest died fighting. It was on October 27th that the front line froze. Neither side could go on anymore. Recently released from the hospital where he had fallen in love with a nurse, Hirsch Gerwicks was a Soviet eyewitness to this part of the battle. He recounts a horrible scene. He had just returned to the front line for several days when he received an urgent summons to go to an aid station. The nurse... The woman who had made love to him so many times was wounded and asking for him. When he walked into the aid station, Hirsch gagged from what he saw. The nurse had stepped on a landmine and lay before him, swathed in bandages like a mummy. He stared at the cot, wanting to scream, but unable to make a sound. She was just a torso. Both of her arms and legs had been blown away, and she was dying. For long minutes, Hirsch looked over the mummified thing he had embraced and loved, and then he stumbled back to the front line to get revenge. Meanwhile, the fight still raged for the barricade plant. Fifty Soviets, led by Commando Captain Ignacy Changar, were ordered to occupy a building next to the plant. When they burst into the building, they found Germans already entrenched in an impregnable position. For ten days, the two groups faced off with each other. The Russians broke through the concrete floor and started to build a tunnel. They planned to dig under the German position and blow it apart from beneath it. On the eleventh day, Ch Changar placed the dynamite at the end of the tunnel and lit the fuse. With the fuse lit, the Russians ran outside when the explosion came too quickly. It picked them up and hurled them down again with violent force. Old Changar. Fusing two little fuses. That's right. Changar looked back to see the strong point rising slowly in the air. Then it expanded outward and broke into hundreds of pieces. A huge ball of fire catapulted up from the debris, and two of his men had been incinerated in the blast wave. Many more of his men were wounded. However, he counted well over 200 legs in the rubble. 
His plan had worked. Now, I want to summarize the fight for the factory district now. According to William Craig, the fighting had devastated both German and Russian armies. He explains, The hand-to-hand fighting for the factories had wiped out battalions, regiments, and even entire divisions. From groups which had come into Stalingrad, seven to 8,000 strong, only a few hundred straggled away to fight under new commanders. End quote. A worse problem soon appeared. Chunks of ice were drifting down the Volga until the ice stopped moving. Uh, so does that mean the Volga's freezing, or is it just chunks of ice? It's down? not freezing. There's huge chunk of ice coming down the river, which means that the boats can't cross because if they hit yeah. this ice, they'll sink. Okay, okay. All right, so yeah. it's very bad for the Russians. Very bad. Very okay. bad. All right, and supply boats can't navigate the ice flows. The Russians were cut off. All right. So on October 27th, the first reports came into the German headquarters about a dangerous buildup of Soviet forces on the Axis flanks behind Stalingrad. The Russian forces were an attack grouping. The Germans knew the Russian attack plans extended all the way to the Black Sea and by implication would endanger the whole German army if nothing was done. Now the Soviets were building up where the Italians, Romanians, and Hungarians are. Way back behind Stalingrad, 100 miles. Romanian Italian troops. (laughs) Nervously, Paulus tried to force an end to the battle at Stalingrad in a desperate attempt to free forces for the inevitable Soviet attack on his flanks. He knew was coming now. God let the Russians break on the Volga, prayed Paulus, and then he ordered more men into the meat grinder. The forces building up on the German flanks were all part of a well-thought-out Soviet plan. Already in mid-September, Zhukov and Veselevsky had conceived of a brilliant maneuver. They would break through the Axis flanks protected by the armies of the Axis Alliance, Hungary, Italy, and Romania. The Soviets would push 100 miles northwest of Stalingrad along the Don River and 50 miles south of the city around a chain of salt lakes. Using mechanized troops and tank groups, the Russian pincers would link up at a town called Kalach, way behind Stalingrad, trapping Paulus's 6th Army and the Germans in a massive pocket that could be cut off from resupply and liquidated. The plan was running on schedule. North of the Don River, Russian forces continued their buildup. They moved at night to avoid detection. Well over 200,000 troops, 10,000 cavalry, and hundreds of tanks began to assemble. Each new soldier was subject to intense political indoctrination. A few hundred yards from these teeming masses of Soviets, just seven poorly equipped Romanian divisions stood in their way. Each division covered a 12-mile front. It would be nothing for tank groups to poke a hole in the thin veneer of the Romanian army. In a desperate attempt to break through and crush Soviet resistance in the city, Hitler released the elite 336 battalion combat engineers for the final massive assault. One of the pioneers, Major Joseph Linden, describes the hellish scene he witnessed when stepping into Stalingrad. I had never seen such a ghastly battlefield. Loosely hanging corrugated steel panels creaked eerily in the wind. Cellars were turned into strong points. There were huge craters everywhere. And all over a never-ceasing crescendo of noise from all types of guns and bombs, end quote. The first pioneer objective, the chemist's shop, fell without trouble. But at the second objective, the commissar's house, the engineers walked into a trap. Every opening had been sealed up by debris, and from tiny peepholes, the Russians shot with deadly accuracy. The next morning... 
When the pioneers broke into the commissar's house, the Russians retreated to the basement. Driven mad with anger, the Germans ripped up the floor and threw cans of gasoline in and ignited them. Then they lowered satchel charges and detonated them just to be sure. The ground shook as the detonations reverberated throughout the streets. The pioneers relentlessly drove the Russians back, taking heavy losses themselves, and when they reached the Volga, the Russians hid in caves and continued to resist. Almost all of the city had fallen at a terrible price to the Germans. The pioneers themselves had numbered almost 3,000 men five days before. Now there were only 2,000 left. I believe that means they lost about 1,000. That's true. Antony Bivor describes the battle this way, quote, Russians in the factory district were reduced to several bridgeheads on the west bank, none more than a few hundred yards deep. Streets were taken, Soviet positions pushed back ever closer to the Volga. The barricaded gun factory was partially overrun. The 62nd Russian Army last crossing point was under direct machine gun fire, and all reinforcements had to be thrown into that sector to save it. Father, a German corporal, wrote home, You kept telling me, be faithful to your standard and you will win. You will not forget these words because it's impossible to describe what is happening here. Everyone in Stalingrad who still possesses a head and hands, women as well as men, carries on fighting. Another German soldier also wrote home in a bitter mood, Don't worry, don't be upset, because the sooner I am under the ground, the less I will suffer. A third soldier surveyed the ruins around him and said, There's a saying from the gospel that often passes through my thoughts. No stone will be left standing one upon another. Here it is the truth. When it was evident the drive on the Volga had failed to achieve decisive victory in Stalingrad, the German high command took action to guard the exposed flanks of the army group. The 48th Panzer Corps would move to the threatened sector to contain any breakthroughs. There was a problem, though. During the weeks of inactivity behind the lines, field mice had nested inside the vehicles and eaten away insulation, covering the electrical systems. The unit was almost totally crippled. Out of 104 tanks, only 42 were ready for combat. No one notified the German high command about the serious weakness of the Panzer Corps. On November 19th, the German radio board lit up. At 6.30 a.m., the Soviets unleashed Operation Uranus. It started with a brilliant fireworks show on the horizon as 3,500 Russians' guns unleashed hell on the Romanian Third Army. 100 miles away from the city of Stalingrad, on the northern flank of the German bulge into southern Russia, here's how one historian describes the initial onslaught. Trapped in straw-lined trenches, soldiers of the Romanian 3rd Army watched the artillery burst march precisely up and down their lines. Bunkers collapsed, suffocating hundreds of men. Shell-shocked men screamed in fear and blocked their ears to escape the terrible noise. Men bit their fists and drew streams of blood from their knuckles. And when the cannonade finally stopped, the Romanians heard the ominous sound of tank motors as the Russian 5th and 21st tank armies burst forth from their bridgeheads. The T-34 stormed through the fog and snow into the lines of the bewildered Romanians. Most succumbed to tank fright, leapt from cover and ran. Only a few stayed to duel the advancing armor, end quote. The Romanians were collapsing. 
The tanks penetrated the Romanian line and drove deep into Axis territory. The 48th Panzer Corps was the only thing that stood between them and total disaster. The German tankers locked their cupolas and drove out to meet the teeming masses of tanks and hundreds of thousands of Russian infantrymen. It was 48 tanks versus hundreds of thousands of Soviets. The Germans drove into the oncoming Russians looking death in the face, muttering prayers and curses. But that's another podcast. You know what? I got a good feeling about those guys. 48 tanks? Yeah. Versus onslaughting hundreds of thousands. I of think you're exaggerating the number of Russians I, that were there. I'm not exaggerating. Well, either way, I got a good feeling. All right. Well, I, we'll see what happens on next month's show. I'm sure that's when the Germans bypass the city. Win the <laughs> Stop it. Just quit it. He has this look on his face every time he says that. It's disgusting. Wow, another great podcast in the books, and we got to listen to Luke screw up Azerbaijan. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Head over to the website, thebattlecast.com, for more content. If you have any questions or suggestions on battles, or just criticism for Luke, <laughs> I like to see him cry when he gets it. Please send us an email at battlecastnet at gmail.com. And, hey, what about Facebook? Yes, we have Facebook. Thanks again, everybody. <laughs> and that's it for me here in the North Georgia Bunker. Remember to join us next month as we finish the epic story of the bloodiest battle in human history. And I thought a long time about how to end this show about the most devastating battle in the history of mankind. And I thought it was fitting to reach beyond your frontal lobe and speak to your more elemental mind. I happened to turn to Luke 19 and saw these verses, and I knew they were the last words I wanted you to hear on this episode. It made me feel more elemental. And when Jesus came near the city, he beheld it and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and surround you on every side. And they shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Thanks, JC. 